Welcome, I'm Moshe Ferber. And I am Ariel Munafon. And this is the Silver Lining Podcast, a podcast about security architecture. And with you today, Ariel Munafo, uh, also Moshe Ferber. Hello, Moshe. Hey, good morning. And we got with us uh, Demi Benari, which is the VP R&D for Panerize. Panerize is a software as a service company that is basically doing a third-party assessment. We know that supply chain attacks are getting more popular. So Panerize are uh, basically trying to eliminate this uh, attack vector. Demi, introduce yourself. Good morning. Hello. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, I would like to also introduce the company a bit and myself also. So as Moshe, uh, Moshe had mentioned, uh, my name is Demi Benari. I'm uh, one of the co-founders of Panerys. Uh, and we basically help companies to manage the cybersecurity risk that is imposed by their suppliers. Uh, in origin, in the past, I was in the Israeli Air Force. Uh, there, I actually like developed a missile system, mi- missile defense system. And uh, I was a software engineer, a team leader, and then a senior engineer. And afterwards, I, I started working in a company called uh, Windward. Basically, what I did with missiles in the Israeli Air Force, I did with the ships when I left the military. Uh, there, I started handling more the context of uh, instead of on-prem near real uh, near real time systems, uh, cloud infrastructure. We migrated the whole platform from an on-prem uh, deployment to AWS and working with the big data technologies. And uh, I'm also one of the uh, organizers and co-founders of uh, several developer communities uh, focused in big data, data science, and cloud. And uh, in the company, basically what we do is uh, we help companies to also comply to uh, regulations and compliance issues. Uh, like Moshad mentioned, the whole world of uh, third-party security is really hot today. And uh, more than 60% of hacks are being done through uh, weaker links in the, in the chain and uh, smaller companies that uh, our customers work with. And they go to the smaller companies, hack them, and steal all of the information of the larger corporations and companies. Amazing. Yeah. And well, actually, what Panerize is doing is really interesting because, uh, you know, third party is one of the biggest weakness, and it's very hard to uh, monitor them, and it's very hard to decide, okay, how can I choose my partners wisely? But actually, we're not come here to talk about this one. We're mm-hmm. here to talk about security engineering. And yes. You have a very interesting story. I mean, you're a new company. You, you start. still haven't written uh, one uh, uh, one uh, line of code and you know that you're going to be software as a service and you're a security company which means that you have to be really secure I mean you have to get, let your uh, customers know that they are uh, the, the, the data is in a reliable place that they can trust you so n- right now you you have this knowledge that you're going to be a software as a service that you have going to be a security company and now you have to start planning your infrastructure mm-hmm. start planning your uh, deployment tell us about the uh, I mean, the topic of this discussion is about using Kubernetes, but I g- guess yeah. you had so many decisions to make before mm-hmm. you reached to this point. So really interested in, okay, so we decided to start a company. We understand what we are going to do. How do we choose the platform? How do we, what is the, basically, what is the path that you've been through? Mm-hmm. Uh, also the path and also the question I, I want to know that you asked yourself. This is very important, uh, at yeah. least for me. Okay, great. Uh, so, and as you mentioned, the, the whole impact here is that we come... Uh, from our expertise and knowledge from the world of security and also we have experience in on-prem and cloud. 
So eventually you need to end up with some kind of decision when you go to start building a company, when you're like uh, three people in the garage and you want start want to scale and move through to new customers and you need to move fast and uh, starting to work on a physical data center somewhere uh, it will take a lot of time and a lot of effort in matter of DevOps and uh, specifically operations and like literally buying a new server. It sounds so illogical. And uh, what we wanted to do is move fast. So the other, the, the first, first question that you need to ask, what's the expertise of the team that currently is in place? And what we had is expertise, first of all, from the cloud, from what I bring, and also from the world of uh, security. Uh, cybersecurity in general, and we had security researchers. So eventually you end up with people which are, first of all, know some infrastructure and automation and the whole world and context of cloud. So this is important to, to go. Basically, you need to choose a cloud service provider because I don't want to manage servers. But you also need to kind of incorporate the abilities of security researchers that know really well how to hack things probably, but don't know much about scale and how is it to like uh, system engineering in general and how is it to build a large scale uh, operations and systems. So eventually these are the questions that we'd ask. So we had people that know cloud and people that know security. So it's really straightforward to go with the cloud with a scalable infrastructure that basically I pay as I go and I don't need to put in front uh, a lot of effort and even funds, which we didn't have much in the beginning, uh, to create a scalable infrastructure. Did you question yourself? I mean, how your customers would react? Can you sell this cloud service to, uh, I don't know, to a large bank with all the mm -hmm. regulation? Have you considered? Yeah. So one of the considerations was basically whose data, the data that I'm collecting, uh, in the manner of like, um, uh, who owns the data? This is the, the largest question. And basically our scanning and all of the data collection is Panerai's proprietary data because I'm collecting data about the world. The only uh, information of customers is basically what I keep in the manner of metadata. So in that context, I'm not like going over logs of companies which is like sensitive information of a company and I don't need to put it on-prem, for example, a large bank or a large corporate that a lot of times don't want to release anything from their own network. Put aside my own belief to like if it's secure in the cloud or not, because I really do believe that cloud service providers today arrive to a specific certain uh, point of time in which they're much more secure than other physical data centers that we actually scan all of these things from the outer perimeter and you can see a lot of like gaps, I would say, in this, a nice manner. This is an interesting insight. It, it took years for people to get, to gain this insight. Mm -hmm. I've been fighting about this insight uh, since uh, 2010. Uh, and still <laughs> there, there are uh, people that... I agree. Uh, yeah. I agree. Well, it's because there also there's, uh, there's kivets. There, there are uh, things that you need to think about in this, with this sentence because there's still... We ha still have cloud hacks. Yeah, mm -hmm. so yeah, of course. Uh, and we still have government access to data. So mm -hmm. uh, usually, when people ask me if cloud is more secure or not, I would ask them, "What? How do you define more secure? If the data is unreachable from hackers, but it, it's accessible to United States government, is it more secure or less secure? Mm -hmm. It's not the right term to use. More right. secure or less secure? It's a question of attack vectors. And exactly. most of the cloud providers have eliminated many attack vectors. Most of the attack vectors who remain, there. In the uh, customer responsibility, of course, which is misconfiguration, one of the biggest pain points, basically. Yeah, and this was the topic <laughs> of our uh, previous discussion. So the top, the words are still <laughs> somewhere in the room. Um, so uh, you ended up in, on the cloud, and you ended mm -hmm. up at the Google Compute uh, platform. Yeah, and, and the Google uh, Cloud platform. Um, I would say a few words. 
today, the biggest vendors of uh, cloud service providers actually arrived to a certain point of maturity in which the, the Me Too effect uh, probably occurs in all, I would say, three of them, the three big ones, okay? Because feature-wise, they probably arrive to a certain point in which they are at a same level, okay? I would say that with caution, but but yeah. And uh, eventually you want to end up with somebody that is comfortable for you to work with. And uh, my game changer basically was the people uh, because the security engineers and the people that work here at Google uh, near the R&D center were really cooperative. I worked with AWS in the past. For, for me, it was pretty seamless. I'm not afraid of technology. People uh, are more scary, I think, than technology. And uh, basically, the cooperativeness of uh, people at GCP, what made me actually go there. And I'm not regretting it uh, three years after. Yeah, this is worth mentioning that the Demi is touring around the world and talking <laughs> about his uh, GCP experience <laughs> and is helping a lot of people in understanding the challenges and the advantages of this platform. So Google made, uh, I think, a great deal from <laughs> their point of view. Yeah. They, they got a really goodwill ambassador uh, mm -hmm. working for them. So, uh, okay, so you decided on GCP. Can you tell us a little bit later about how you decided how to build the platform? And in the end, we'll get to, to Kubernetes, of but course. I guess you had uh, so many decisions before that to make. Yeah, uh, so eventually you want to move fast. Even in, before you have a product that you sell, you need to kind of create some kind of cooperation with uh, design partners, people to build the platform with. And eventually when you end up with that, you need to move fast. Okay, so first of all, what kind of technology to, to choose uh, in a matter of coding language. Um, I think more than 80% of tools today in the world of cybersecurity are written in Python. And uh, specifically security engineers and security people know Python. So it was really straightforward to go uh, as a go-to-market, the first go-to-market to Python and all use and leverage all of the tools. So we ended up with a deployment of a lot of scripts, a lot of things that do data collection in Python. And we deployed everything on virtual machines because it's easy. You just take the code, uh, create, of course, all of the infrastructure in the matter of databases. And you have a lot of hosted service providers also in GCP to create some kind of data storage layer. And it was really straightforward to launch a virtual machine when I want to scan a company. So it's really logical. And when I want to scale, I just launch more virtual machines, specifically on Google. It's pretty seamless. Uh, machines can launch in a matter of seconds, even in a matter of like really low amount of seconds. And uh, it's easy. But the thing is that you get to a point in which you underutilize the infrastructure. Why? Because you're talking about scanners, right? You're talking about data collection. You're talking about I.O. And because of that I.O. specifically, I am maybe using a lot of the network, but the CPU is pretty idle most of the time and I'm wasting a lot of money. So in the initial phase, it's awesome, right? When you have like five developers and uh, not too many integration between them to deploy things quickly. I just deploy a new virtual machine image. It's really easy to launch that. I do the scanner and everything. I can launch a larger machine if I need more capacity and that's it. But I am paying a lot of money. So in the initial phase, when you start the POC, everything is cool. You don't get to network congestion. You don't get to like scale problems because you're trying to validate the, the idea, right? But what happens when you need to scan thousands of companies or tens of thousands, hundreds? Then you get to a problem. And eventually you need something that will do the whole orchestration and monitoring. And these are all of the challenges that we faced. And of course, you grow your company, right? You have your first paying customer, your second, your third. You need customer success. You eventually end up with growing the whole like operations of the company and you get blind. 
okay and you don't have any transparency about what's happening in your own infrastructure because we've written all of the orchestration framework in the beginning in cron and bash amazing okay. so um by the way this process of maturing and deciding we're talking about what the first few months mm -hmm. is what the okay. yeah it started i think in the first half year i would say when we also grew the company in a matter of people and with the engagement with other third parties that we're scanning so in the beginning you start off with one okay you know like it's easy and uh, you can even run things manually then you build some kind of orchestration framework that does that automatically but not in a large scale but right after i would say the barrier of three four developers it became harder it became harder to manage that when you get to hundreds of companies that you're scanning it gets much harder to get tr transparency about what's like going wrong even okay you're assuming that everything is okay but literally nothing is okay because a lot of things are blowing up in the background and you even don't know about it <laughs> okay so um you decided to go to GCP, mm -hmm. then you went through the process of, okay, let's try virtual machines, let's try other mm -hmm. uh, platforms, and you ended up with uh, decisions to make uh, containers, and mm -hmm. probably when you decide to manage containers, then you decide about uh, Kubernetes. Yeah. I mean, what, uh, at this point, what kind of uh, changes do you need to make for your team? What kind of changes mm -hmm. do you need to make to your process? What kind of changes do you need to make in the technology? We always try to look at these things, at the p uh, people, uh, process, and technology. Mm -hmm. So can you give us uh, some examples? on? Yep. So first of all, the decision of going to containers. Why? It was mostly for like, um, I would say for two main reasons. One main reason is uh, utilization of infrastructure because I'm a lot IO bound and I don't need much CPU. And if I need that, I want the infrastructure to provide that in a scalable manner without me asking. So it makes sense to do that. And the other is um, growing the ability to develop code easily. Because as I said, I have in the, uh, on the one side engineers and the other side security engineers, which is a different kind of beast. And eventually you want to end up with growing both abilities of adding more engineers and adding more security people without the need of changing code and uh, a lot of code. You will need to change code eventually. And of course, you end up with who's orchestrating everything and who's automating that because somebody needs to do that. So you have the first of all need to develop code easily. You need some kind of CI, CD pipeline, uh, continuous integration, continuous, uh, I would say, delivery and not deployment a really small amount of percentage of companies in the world arrive to continuous uh, deployment. And uh, then you need to grow your people more and because you need to support more customers, more features, etc. So eventually you end up with, I need to grow my whole infrastructure as a company and uh, I need to add more functionality to the uh, skill set of people. Because then I did all of the automation in the engineering team wait, do I need a DevOps guy right now? Yes, the, the, the answer is yes. I need somebody that uh, this is his expertise and knows how to connect between the engineering side, the I want to, re uh, to write uh, clean code uh, with, wait, where, where am I running all of that infrastructure and how can I scale that with a click of a button without changing a lot of code? So you need to add more abilities to your own like team in place 
to also support all of the infrastructure that you want to introduce to your company. Before we go to more uh, in the PPT, if you started now the company, mm -hmm. would you still made the three or four or six months uh, on VMs or, or um, not? It really depends with uh, what kind of expertise the people that we initiate the company come with. Because if I had the focus with a large engineering team in the beginning and I had a lot of funds, then probably I would go to build some kind of easy infrastructure because Kubernetes today is easy, okay? Uh, it's, I, I would uh, take the chance and say it's commodity today. And uh, I would start off with building some kind of ability of CI, CD pipeline with Kubernetes and then start throwing code at it. Mm -hmm. Okay, but then it made more sense because of the maturity of all of the tools in the cloud infrastructure and everything. And because this was the, the team that I had in place. Yeah. So it made sense at that specific t point in time to make that decision. Yeah. The, the, the idea is that in the, these two years that, uh, that, uh, that pass, uh, mm -hmm. things change and you, yeah. need, you need to, to adapt to, to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to go back a second. Yeah. Continuous delivery versus continuous deployment. Where yeah. do you see the difference? I mean, okay. So eventually, all the people like to take CI/CD as continuous integration, continuous delivery, eh, continuous deployment. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is kind of a lie because uh, continuous deployment means that users are immediately getting all of the new features without me be, being able to control that. Once some de uh, developer actually deploys code to Git, it goes through some kind of pipeline and workflow and eventually ends up with users. Mm -hmm. Getting to that means that you need to be in such a high testing coverage and also with assurance with your own infrastructure that a company in the early stage probably won't get to that. And if it gets to that, probably it's wasting their own, um, I won't say, infrastructure uh, as a company uh, to focus on things that are not important because you need to iterate fast. You need to throw code fast. And if you invest a lot of effort into infrastructure in the matter of CI, CD and testing, etc., a lot of times you will fail and not fast enough. Okay. So are you saying basically is that uh, continuous deployment means that uh, the developer finished deploying, the code gets immediately to the user, which is immediately very... after a testing period of yeah. something, so, yes, yeah. which is very hard to do. So most company will settle with the company, develop the code, uh, submit it. It goes to the integration, it integrates to the code, then it gets up to yeah. somewhere to the production environment, not for all the users. This is where you start your uh, yeah, basically graduated deployment. Mm -hmm. I would say even a, a more cautious manner of deploying automatically to staging. Mm -hmm. somebody doing some kind of QA or assurance even before it gets released to the customers. And I would add another step to that of feature flagging. Because even when you deploy to production, then eventually you don't have to introduce the feature to all of your customers. So I can feature flag that to an alpha tester or beta tester to kind of test it out and maybe even go back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I see what you're getting to. Okay, so now you are you have a company. You have basically wh what we learn are your software as a service. You're using security mm -hmm. services. Now you have two. Uh, basically, you need to uh, service two kinds of uh, a population. You have your uh, security researchers, mm -hmm. which need to deploy their own code. They're not uh, they're not very good at it, but they're writing code. Mm -hmm. so it might not be the cleanest one. It might not be scalable but you need to run it anyway. Mm -hmm. And you have your own developers and you uh, that needs to have the solid uh, common ground engineering, yeah. engineering uh, you call them mm -hmm. the engineering, yeah. And uh, how, so 
tell us how did you change your process and uh, uh, later on we'll talk about how, what kind of people do you need and what kind of technology mm-hmm. back uh, infrastructure do you need okay awesome so eventually uh, we'll start in the beginning we had one team that developed the whole infrastructure meaning also writing the code of the collectors, also writing the web servers that are uh, our customers access, and uh, even all of the monitoring infrastructure that we have to kind of like have transparency of, about what's happening. And probably they clean the floors at the end of the day. And yeah, <laughs> and the shopping to the office and everything, of course, yes. So And it was me, the me. Yeah, <laughs> but don't tell them, you're just ruining that. And uh, eventually you need to kind of do some kind of separation of concerns. Because the expertise of the engineering team is to build scalable infrastructure to support a lot of users, to kind of create uh, even the ops around it to kind of have some transparency about the production environment. The expertise of the security researchers with really talented people is basically creating the abilities to collect the information, right? And to create some kind of transparency about the, our like third parties that we're scanning, but they don't know scale. Okay, and it's harder for them to kind of comprehend about what it is to run a a, a large scale system in production. So I kind of want to uh, strengthen all of the strength of each team and I need to add more skill set to my own team. So we kind of divided the the engineering effort or the R&D to two teams. Uh, One team is the engineering team, which will create the platform and uh, create all of the abilities for scalability. And the security research team that will still be connected to the production environment and see what customers are seeing because they're in the whole workflow, but they are developing abilities. Okay, and it's easy for them to develop abilities. I don't want to, most cybersecurity companies, I would say, even not startups, even the large companies, what they do is they have the security research team, which are the, I would say, the bad boys, okay, developing abilities really fast and doing something that will kind of penetrate a lot of companies. But eventually, when you end up that you want to take that ability and put that in production, they kind of pass it on to the engineering team for two or three months of development. Yeah, because developing at scale and developing nice is of boring. Yeah. yeah, they like it. Who clean wants and dirty. that? <laughs> yeah, but eventually it kind of gives you a blocker of even introducing new features takes months instead of like immediately I need some kind of ability and I want to put it in. And as you know, things in the world of cybersecurity are overchanging always. And the thing is that new things are being introduced. And what happens if you have a new breach? How like your time to market is really really important. Mm-hmm. So I know that every ability that is developed by the security research team and goes to production might even take 150% of the time, maybe even 200% of the time. But it keeps the security researchers engaged with what the customers are seeing and my time to market gets shortened really vastly. Mm-hmm. So I'd really rather take that risk. Okay. So those are the changes you made to your uh, uh to your developing process mm-hmm. and the way that you uh, the way that you build your services, what kind of uh, people do you need? I mean, so, any changes mm-hmm. in the market for that? Uh, okay, so first, uh, you know the cool world of DevOps, okay, and uh, a lot of people actually take that and develop that to DevSecOps, and a lot of people like to call that SREs, uh, software reliability engineers, and production engineers, and uh, super duper ops wizard or whatever they want to call that. So eventually you need somebody that knows automation, that knows to kind of create a a connection between the world of engineering 
and infrastructure and ops. And this is basically DevOps, okay? Uh, other people might dispute uh, the name DevOps and uh, what it actually means, but it doesn't really matter. And you end up with a person that today needs no code, okay? It's not only like uh, being the cool kid that knows Bash and Chrome and that's it, I know Linux and uh, I'm a cool IT administrator. Uh, for example, even if you're using Jenkins today, you need to learn Groovy to kind of like create some kind of automation scripts and you need to do, know Python to parse things and create ETL jobs, maybe to create some kind of monitoring platform to, to your infrastructure. So it's not a surprise, we needed a DevOps guy. And uh, this was kind of the integration between the two teams and our DevOps engineer actually goes to all of our sprint plannings. And uh, we go on the retro and kind of understand what are the problems that both teams have in the matter of communication. And he's the one that closes all, all of these gaps and kind of like releases all of the bottlenecks, which is really important for, from, our, uh, from our view of actually developing software. Okay, so yeah. this uh, goes through all of our podcasts that yeah. ops yeah. guys need uh, to know scripting. Uh, mm -hmm. What they need, really need to know is, uh, is changing, but... Definitely scripting. It's, it's, it's not just the ops, it's everyone, everybody. I think. Yeah, mm -hmm. everybody. everybody. Yeah, everybody. It's the same I would say that engineers today need to know cloud. Okay, they need to know where my code is running and need to be connected to that and not I'm like taking the code, my code is clean, everything is good, and I will throw it to the ops guy that will handle that in production. It's not my worries. Okay. Going down one level, I mean, what kind of specific knowledge are you looking for? I mean, in the pre in previous conversation, we talked about uh, Git knowledge, we mm -hmm. talked about, uh, you mentioned Groovy and Python, anything else you're looking at specific uh, skill sets? Um, so it will be, as you mentioned, Git is important because all of the developers are working in that. And even when you're going in the manner of DevOps itself, as uh, infrastructure as code, okay, mm -hmm. that uh, all of the configuration of your physical infrastructure is also kept on Git. And you want to reproduce that easily with a click of a button. So the DevOps guy actually needs to know Git and needs to know how all of the configuration is kept, right? And how you launch things and automation of all of that so using uh, tools like even like Ansible, Puppet, Chef to orchestrate everything in the matter of infrastructure even before something is running in your production system. So this is important. Going another step further, you need to understand the development process, right? Git is awesome, but Git is super complicated. And if you don't understand how the team is working, saying Agile is not specific enough, how you're working with branches, okay, how you're deploying to which kind of environments, then you need to understand how developers are working and then adapt all of the infrastructure to the workflow because every company does that differently. There is no cookie cutter for that. Okay, so they need, uh, basically our new DevOps guys need to know a little bit uh, development, some kind of uh, scripting language, mm -hmm. uh, Python, uh, Groovy, uh, whatever. Even JavaScript, Even why? JavaScript. Because a lot of services are written in JavaScript. Mm -hmm. you, know you need to know NPM, how deployment is made, package management. You need to know Docker, this is like a 101 today and how you keep your Docker containers and everything, and even like release management. Versions, what do you do with versions, right? Okay, so they need, really need to understand well the configuration management mm -hmm. and also the software uh, yeah. framework. Okay, and the last thing, technology. Technology yeah. changes uh, you've witnessed how, uh, mm -hmm. how this has so affected you. There are a few, 
okay in the beginning we had virtual machines lots of virtual machines okay and we wanted to save a lot of money there but also the effort and get some kind of transparency so what we did in the beginning is we had written our own orchestration infrastructure i don't want to do that there is somebody that did that better than me and uh, our brother i would say kubernetes <laughs> and uh, basically having that as a go-to market tool and specifically if you're working on gcp it was like fully integrated from day one with everything and it's pretty easy and today all of the other cloud service providers are catching up to that and creating a managed service of kubernetes this is really important okay and because of that it was really straightforward for somebody that has an orchestration framework for docker containers We've transformed everything to Docker containers because everything is confined. Right now, I don't need to at least like be worried that all of my packages are written in Python and started working with virtual ENVs and all of the uh, crossing between different versions of Python and everything. Everything is encapsulated in a Docker container. Somebody is handling the orchestration of all of that. It's really easy to plug and play monitoring tools to that. It's seamless to uh, kind of like understand that you need to go to Kubernetes. Okay, interesting. Um, we talked uh, previously. We talked uh, uh, to Riskify, to Riskify mm -hmm. CIO, and he told us about all the tools that you needed in order to integrate Kubernetes into a Google computer, uh, sorry, into AWS, mm -hmm. like the uh, ISTO for networking mm -hmm. and the IEM uh, ROS oh. permission. I understand this is in JCP. This is much easier. Yeah, it was. It was really seamless to actually integrate everything. So, for example, they've introduced also features of taking the IAM roles in Google and having everything as service accounts. So even my services are accessing only the relevant data that you need to, to access, which is really important for me as a sec guy, okay, mm -hmm. on my other hat, uh, of getting something that is secure, okay? And even when I have a closed VPC on Google Cloud with all of the firewalls in place and everything, even if you have somebody inside the network, you can't be able to access uh, you 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 shouldn't be able to access actually like other pieces of the infrastructure that you're not authorized to. So this is seamless basically using Google Cloud. Of course, on top of it, we needed to add some kind of application framework, uh, role-based access control to that. But this is for our own users and not backend services. This is not for the developers. This yeah. is for your consumers. And yeah. of course, you know, like uh, SSO and MFA. Mm -hmm. the, the the basic things uh, I would say that prevent ninety five percent of all of the security issues uh, coming from the outside. Yeah, actually, I see that organizations are uh, requiring today uh, SSO just for even for operational uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. usage. I mean, not from security reasons because they they want to make sure that the users will have a, cl a clear experience. Yeah, federation. I think it's a mm -hmm. for software as a service company that is doing enterprise selling. This is a must today. I see many people uh, encounter challenges with Kubernetes regarding monitoring and logging mm -hmm. and uh, basically understand what is going on behind the scenes. How do you deal with that? So that integration was pretty easy also on GCP. So they have a product that is called Stackdriver that today is kind of like transformed to GCP monitoring. Okay, this is the title. And uh, the integration of logging and basic, uh, I would say, physical infrastructure of all of the uh, CPU usage, memory, etc. With a click of a button, you basically get that on Stackdriver. So that was pretty easy from day one, like zero to hero. But once you need to kind of correlate all of the application metrics and user metrics to that, it's, it becomes pretty tricky, okay? <clears throat> so if we mentioned about what are the skill set of the DevOps engineer that needs to be introduced, 
um, in the past, uh, kind of like data engineers would do that, but today DevOps people also need to do uh, ETL jobs. And uh, because of that, you need some kind of scripting language, as we said, Python or something. So we can created uh, an infrastructure with um, uh, even a relational database that we ETL all of the information and correlated information about infrastructure, user experience and uh, user usage in a single dashboard in Grafana which sits on top of a relational database. And we query that to kind of create a transparency all of our infrastructure and correlation between uh, user metrics and operational metrics with um, the infrastructure, okay? And when I'm capping in a matter of CPU, I, need, I know to correlate that because I have a really high usage of scanners right now. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Uh, before we go to summarize, I want to ask a question, a personal mm-hmm. question, David. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you manage to study so much? Because wow. okay. <laughs> because I, I think that uh, this is uh, like we went to our podcast that talk uh, about technology and and all the changes that are going uh, down in the world. I just stopped learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I okay. I get what you're saying. Uh, first of all, I don't believe that I study enough. <laughs> uh, I think I'm not getting to like. 95% of the things that I want to learn. Uh, but uh, the community engagement and all of the talks with people and kind of understanding the other uh, companies and how they're working and how they're doing things is really important to get an ingest because it, even uh, with that, I'm disqualifying a lot of things that might not work for my own use case. So by learning that, I'm saving myself time. Once I know what to use, I can go into depth in the T model, I would say. I know a really broad variety of technologies and things that people are doing, but when I need to go more into depth, I just dive in specifically to solve some kind of problem. And the community engagement and the things that I'm doing out of the company is something that kind of like widens the, the variety of input that I have to things. Even if it's the world of security and going to conferences and talking, because like for me, the experience of going to a conference and talking to developers or security people is to have some kind of stage to people to say that I'm stupid, that I did something wrong, because this is the only stage that somebody will actually like dispute me. Uh, even if I'm writing a blog post, the, the chances of somebody writing comment that I will like benefit from are slim near to zero. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is something that I think that uh, we need to encourage is to really talk, to, to share information and mm-hmm. to, to not be, you know, uh, scared of also giving comments and, uh, yeah. and getting back. I think yeah. these podcasts and all of the engagement that we have with people in technology like Ariel and Moshe are like super important in my opinion. And even getting some kind of feedback, even like we brought Masha to, to our company to give us feedback about the workflow that we're doing as somebody that sees a lot of companies and getting that feedback is super valuable for like the company, the technology, and even the go-to-market food customers. Okay. So summarizing, we're running out of time. So uh, Panorize had a challenge. They needed to build software as a service. It was a security company, so they couldn't uh, escape with any security uh, requirement. They needed Mm -hmm. to fill them all. So you started up working with uh, uh, instances and you soon realized that it's not efficient, it's not covering your need, Mm -hmm. and you need to be first more, uh, you need to work faster, you need to have more efficient deployments, you need 
to uh, work more efficiently on the cost point of view. I mean, not, not to deploy things you don't need. So this is where you moved into uh, containers and mm -hmm. Kubernetes, which gave you this, uh, which give you the flexibility. It also enables you to, because you have a diverse uh, development teams, security mm -hmm. researchers and developers, it gives you the ability to take a code that a security researcher is doing and running it in a pretty closed garden where it uh, can be, mm -hmm. uh, it can work up independently without messing with other uh, environment. Regarding the challenges, so you had to change your uh, the way that the company is built, the, the, the deployment process. You build two different uh, core system, two different core teams: the engineering teams and the security researcher teams that are working together. From the people point of view, you need developers. Even if it's DevOps guys, they need to know uh, the basics of development. They need to understand scripting. They need to understand Git, right? Mm -hmm. They need to understand the development environment. And of course, from the technology point of view. Um, you had to, because you're working batch and uh, uh, mm -hmm. this is not the, your real use case for Kubernetes, you have to develop your own workflow uh, manager, man, workflow manager, and you have to, uh, but the good thing is that uh, because Kubernetes is, is integrated well into uh, GCP, you didn't have to do some kind of mm -hmm. uh, mapping of permissions and uh, building different services uh, like IAM roles to uh, mm -hmm. Kubernetes roles, so it was uh, easier for you guys from this point of view regarding logging and monitoring currently uh, you need to take it to somewhere that you can uh, store it safely and basically build your own graph on top of it using one of the known pi uh, sorry bi uh, application mm -hmm. this is a, this is what you made yeah anything you want to add on top of it uh, yeah we, we didn't go into depth more of uh, the implementation of the workflow manager because i, I think it's a really different subject than what we came to talk about but uh, we've built the transporter which is the workflow manager as you said and a lot of people disputed that and said why aren't aren't you using like really common tools in the market today like airflow or luigi Two and a half years ago, it wasn't that uh, mature enough, okay? And it didn't uh, answer our specific use case. But the cool thing that we uh, had achieved is basically with a click of a button, when we needed to add two times as much capacity of customers, what we did is basically launched more servers on our Kubernetes cluster, uh, enhanced the, the throughput of the workflow manager itself, and kind of like ramped up the database server uh, just a bit more to handle more throughput. And that's it. This is the only thing that we need to do. And to introduce new features and to introduce new scanners and new hacks that come out, we kind of like respond to that super quickly. The security researchers need to add more abilities. That's it. We scale more abilities without changing the whole like infrastructure of running all of the orchestration on the cloud. So mm -hmm. this is a pretty amazing point. We are not perfect. I'm not saying that, but we're over improving always. And uh, because of that, it's easy for us to introduce new changes because of the whole of the technology infrastructure. So I'm really proud of people. One of the biggest uh, pain points I see in companies is that usually at a certain point, they need to re-engineer. I mean, mm -hmm. talking about startups, they really need to, they, they need to, okay, we're posing everything, we're stopping developing the future, yeah. we need to re-engineer stuff in order to manage the new scale. So you're saying that currently at least, you managed to bypass this. Uh, Hopefully, yeah. This stage. <laughs> Until and you get stuck. <laughs> you will get stuck eventually, okay? Yeah. You will get to some kind of like glass ceiling, but eventually for us, it's really easy to scale our customer base uh, according to the amount of servers and money that I'm spending on infrastructure. Also, you're not real time, right? Your scanner can run. You, you don't care if it's running at eight o'clock or 10 o'clock. It's not. Uh... It is running always. I'm okay. aggregating things in the SLA that I want to give to our customers. There are customers that want that in a matter of hours, which is, 
I don't know, pretty uncommon use case. Usually daily basis is good enough for most of them because right now they have coverage that is annual. In in the good case, they have annual, mm -hmm. okay? So going into granularity level of daily is amazing for most customers. Okay, Ariel, you want to close with something? Uh, I would just say that it was really interesting and uh, I follow you. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, keep doing that and keep uh, giving back to the community is very important. Thank you okay. very much. Thank you, Demi. Thank you to all, all our listeners and uh, until the next one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.